Good morning, Restoration. I just wanted to give a quick update on some finances. Um, this year in 2020 obviously has been a, a crazy year and within the pandemic shutdown, we actually created a fund called the Acts 4 Fund. Um, prior to that, we had kind of a benevolence uh, fund way for people to give to help others. But during the pandemic, especially, we decided to put together a fund. We asked you to contribute and many of you have contributed above and beyond what you normally give to our church, which has been so great. And I just wanted to give you a quick update, not only of where we're at in the fund, but uh, what your money has gone to. Uh, first of all, near $20,000 has been given um, over the year to help people um, in different ways. And so uh, more than three quarters of that has already been given out uh, we still have money to give. Currently, we're working with Arvada High School because there is a family at Arvada High School who is in a tight spot. We're hearing more information um, actually on Monday, tomorrow, on how we're going to be able to uh, come alongside this family financially. But we've given money um, to people outside of our church. Uh, we have helped uh, people do some things with their uh, with their homes because uh, you know something major went out and they didn't have the money for it, a furnace, whatever. Uh, we've helped people within our church who are were within uh, a spot where the, uh, rent was due and, and bills were due, but uh, there wasn't a, a, a spot there for their uh, employment insurance and things like that to come through. And so we've helped a variety of people from all walks of life and backgrounds over this year. And so I just wanted to thank you. Thank you for contributing to that. Uh, you're welcome to continue to contribute to that because I'm sure there's gonna be more needs as we go forward. But I also wanna just keep encouraging you and thanking you for giving. Um, it is a difficult time and I know that uh, with our church structure being a little different, um, it might feel like, well, they don't need our money as much. I just want you to know that most of our finances go towards staffing. And so our youth pastor, Jaden, as he's beginning the junior high program and, and, and creating some events this month, um, Katie, all the work she's doing with children's, Trent is organizing our worship team in different uh, house churches, and then as we gather all together. Mandy keeps it all glued together, and, and Nick's working on our website to our leadership team, who has been really uh, thinking and praying and collaborating behind the scenes on how we can connect as a church and, and keep on our path missionally. Um, it's just been a wild year, and I'm so grateful. I get to work with the best people. And so if you get a chance to thank our leadership team, thank our staff, all of that to say is keep being faithful giving. Um, we are currently behind uh, at about 5K a month uh, onto our, our full budget. So um, we are spending less. Obviously, we're not spending on rent, but we're also spending less um, out of choice. And uh, what we want to do is just continue to build into what we're going to be able to do in 2021. So although we don't have any answers yet for you on timetable on things with the Arvada Center, um, keep pushing into house churches, keep being with each other, 
and um, we're just excited. And so thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have any questions about finances, if you have any questions about how the Acts 4 money is being spent, contact us. You can contact Steve Reiner, who is our finance chairman. Um, you can contact anybody on the leadership team, or you can contact me, and we can go from there. So here we go. Remember last week, Paul uh, talked about his joy. And he's writing this letter from prison to the people of Philippi, and he says, make my joy complete. Uh, make it overflow. And, and he says, here's how you can do that, by being like-minded. And then he gives a whole bunch of different ways they can be like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He talked about unity and humility. But he's not done. Because he continues in verse 5. It says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So from what I hear, in prison, you have some downtime. And Paul is a brilliant writer. Uh, scholars, uh, uh, literacists, people who study Paul's writing are blown away by his skill. Because he uses um, allusions to the Old Testament. And he uses uh, subplots and and metaphors and all this beautiful stuff. He's, he's genius. And it's almost if, as if he had help writing some of this stuff. Um, but right here, he puts into this letter what scholars believe is an ancient hymn, one of the first uh, recorded and um, even sung uh, poetry from the New Testament church, that this is something that had been around um, and he actually pulls this into his letter. And, and the reality is, if we're honest, some things are just best in lyric form. Um, you, you know how it goes when someone's humming a tune and, and lyrics just pop right back into your mind. Uh, lyrics, uh, especially put to music, tend to stick into our minds, whether we like it or not. And uh, the thickest passage, this, this passage is probably the thickest passage um, one of the thickest ones in all of the New Testament. In fact, uh, my former New Testament professor, Craig Blomberg, he actually writes this in his uh, conversation about Philippians. He says, these seven verses, okay, so this poem, um, have received more attention from New Testament scholars and Christian theologians than any other passage in Philippians and easily qualify for inclusion among the most hotly debated passages in the Bible. Um, so to preface this poem, 
Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So whatever this is, this poem, whatever how hotly debated it is, uh, no matter what it is, Paul is saying it's about relationships. That's what it's about. And a lot of times people debate this and they're trying to figure out the theology of Jesus and God and was Jesus God and God Jesus and all that kind of stuff. We're going to go through that. But remember, the whole thing is about relationships. And this is so important because it gets overlooked. It's, a, it's about how you treat your wife. It's about how you treat your husband. It's about how you treat your neighbors and your coworkers and your kids and your house church. It's about how you treat that person that drives you crazy and up a wall, which could be your wife, your husband, your neighbors, your house church. It could be that. But the point is, is that it, it, this is how we treat other people. And so for the next few minutes, it's going to be pretty intense. I want you to drink your coffee all the way to the bottom because we are going to get into some heavy theology. Now, the important thing to know is theology is not meant to stay in our heads and be something we think about and sort about. And it's important to think right about God. It's, it's very important. But it can't stay detached from our lives. And when theology stays detached from our lives, it, it, it's meaningless. And so this passage about who Jesus is is, is, is a heavy passage about um, how God operates. But it's also about our money, our time, um, our words. It's about our whole life. So don't forget, line by line as we go through this, it's about relationships. Okay, so... Six stanzas, we're gonna go through them really quick. Um, these six stanzas in this poem, one by one. The first one is this, verse six. Who being in very nature God. So Jesus existed in the form of God. This is what Paul is saying, in the form of God. This is, the Greek word is theou. okay? The form of God. And so you can think if you're a philosophy major or spent some time, maybe took philosophy 101, Plato talked about the forms. And in Greek thought, it was the outward appearance of the gods. So what Paul is saying here is meaning when you look at Jesus, you actually see an accurate representation of, representation of who God is. And so that's what Morphe Theu means. And this is all prior to Jesus' birth into the human race as a human being. And it goes on. It says, He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And this is a Greek word, harpagnon, which means uh, robbery or to grasp for or exploited for your own selfish agenda. So, uh, here is Jesus, theu by right, this is who he is, but he did not exploit that right for his own selfish agenda. And then it goes on in verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing. This word, uh, uh, nothing, is kenosis, which means he emptied himself he poured himself out. 
And, and the interesting part here is um, he goes on to say how he poured himself out by taking the very nature of a servant, by me, being made in human likeness. So Morphetheu emptied himself and became Morphedulu, a servant. That is the story here. So think with me. Paul, to Paul, Jesus is Morphetheu, fully God, and at the same time, Morphedulu, a servant, human. He is both, fully at the same time. And it's very important for us to understand, um, have the right thinking about who God is, because that does affect our being and our doing. And so what's really important is to understand that God, uh, Jesus is not 50% God and 50% human. Okay? That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not 99% God 1% human, okay? Or in our language, he is, he is not 99% um, human with a spark of the divine, you know? With, with that's how the, the Denver understanding of spirituality is. Um, he's, not he's not God pretending to be human either. Um, he is in very nature God, more faith theu, very nature human, a slave, a servant, more faith. Dulu. And um, to become human, the, the, the theological term is incarnation. To in, which means in, which I know that's is some good Latin for you right there. Um, carnation, the flesh, in the flesh, God wrapped up in flesh and blood. Uh, so for God to become human, he had to empty himself. He had to kenosis. And what did he have to empty himself of? Well, um, three kind of important theological terms that are, you've probably heard before. Um, God is omnipresent. God is everywhere um, at all times. Um, God is omnipotent. Um, so God is all-powerful. And God is omniscient, which means God is all-knowing. And uh, the question we need to ask is, Jesus on earth, was Jesus everywhere at once? No. I mean, read the story of Lazarus, and Jesus was in a different town, and he wasn't with Lazarus when he died. And uh, was, is Jesus all-powerful? Was Jesus on earth? No. He did miracles. He did things, but he wasn't all-powerful. And, and he wasn't all-knowing. I mean, there was times when he asked questions. And so, I mean, Jesus in his humanity was, he bled, he died, he hungered, he learned, he asked questions. And so God, uh, there's a uh, great theologian named Gary Brashears. He says that uh, God in Jesus became human and laid down the God card. That's what that's what uh, he says happens. He, God and Jesus became human and laid down the God card. So um, God lays down his power. Uh, he steps in. He's still fully God, but he lays down. He empties himself 
to become human, to become morphe dulu, and um, to become human uh, and serve, and serve humanity, to serve us. Um, and this is why Jesus, uh, in his own words, says, the Son of Man came, okay, as a ransom uh, to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so this is why this is just so incredible in the life of Jesus. He, he enacts his servant role with the disciples and he washes their feet, which was insane to think about. That what kind of a God washes feet? What kind of a God uh, uh, gets down on his hands and knees and serves people like that? This is why I think this whole Jesus thing is not made up. Like who would make this up? If you were making up a God, why would you make up a God that in human form would serve, would die, would wash feet? And then it says in verse 8, and being found in appearance um, as a man, okay, and, and as, a, as a human being, as a traveling itinerant rabbi with calluses on his hands from 30 years of building, he humbled himself. Underline that. Um, remember, this is about relationships. And then by becoming obedient to death, um, this is, uh, so, uh, we, we just got to make sure this is super clear because a lot of people think that, um, you know, outside the church and sometimes even inside the church that Jesus didn't really want to die. Um, that wasn't the plan, but, um, God figured it out in the moment and made it happen. Um, no, it wasn't an accident that Jesus died. Okay? In John 10, 17 through 18, it says this, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So the idea, the, the idea is that Jesus shows up with the intentionality of being obedient to death, to put the world back together was the plan. And in order to do that, Jesus had to lay down his life. God had to uh, morphe theu for us and was crucified. A crucified Messiah was the ultimate example of a, of a, of a self-giving love. Okay? And so in the, the, the way the order of the poem goes is this final line, even death on a cross. So if you're, if you're a poet and didn't know it, there's six stanzas. And right in the middle of this is this line that doesn't fit the cadence. And it's a poetic way of, of highlighting um, something really powerful here. And that is an added line, and it's a fourth line, and it's meant to push it to the forefront and to make us wrestle with it. Now, short background, in the Philippian church um, and in this day and age that Paul is writing, this is an honor-shame society, okay? Honor-shame society. And we've talked about this before, but I just want to bring it back to this um, even to this day, there are honor-shame societies in different places in the world. 
Um, not in the United States. Um, we never mind. <laughs> but um, in an honor-shame culture, your ultimate aim in life is to bring honor to your family, to your community. That is your ultimate aim in life. In our society, our ultimate lame, aim in life, layman, our ultimate aim in life is to bring um, ourselves as individuals um, the greatest uh, sense of worth. And uh, for an honor-shame society, what keeps you up at night, what, what you stare at the ceiling thinking about is not personal shame, but it's bringing shame on your family and on your community. That is something you want to avoid at all costs. And so in that world, the cross was the epitome of shame. The epitome of shame on your family and on your community. It was the most shameful way to die. Crucifixion was illegal for Roman citizens, um, except for high treason. Uh, this is Cicero. He writes this about crucifixion and about um, punishment. He says, to bind a Roman citizen is an outrage. To scourge him a crime. It almost amounts to parricide to put him to death. How shall I describe crucifixion? No adequate word can be found to represent so execrable an enormity. Like, they can't even fathom how shameful it is to die of crucifixion. So the Latin word for, cru for cross is crux. And what's interesting is that scholars have found that the word actually in Paul's day and age was pretty much an expletive. Like you wouldn't use that word. If you were to hear it out loud, it would sound like, for instance, reading this letter out loud in Lydia's courtyard in the middle of a Roman colony, obedient to death, even death on a beep. I mean, it would be just like, what did he just say? And in, you know, it's interesting in the Old Testament, it, it, it talks about this, this idea of being cursed. Anyone who hangs on a tree, this idea of a crucified king. Are you out of your mind? That can't be the case. Hebrews talks about how Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, okay, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So this whole poem is set up against something even bigger in Roman culture, and it's against this honor-shame society, but even more, uh, archaeologists and scholars have found something called cursus honorum. And this is a Roman um, senatorial way of how you see a ladder progressing in life. It's a status of the culture. It's a, a ladder ascending Roman culture. And it could be called a, a course of honor or the ladder of offices. And basically what this is is a, a sequential order, sorry, 
of public, public offices held in Roman society. So if you were an aspiring politician, uh, if you wanted to be a Roman senator, um, you would begin to climb the ladder of the courses honorum, okay? Or the course of honor. And it, this would be your whole aim in life was to take the next step and the next rung and the next jump and this poem is set up against that. This poem about who Jesus is is set up in contrast to that. Making himself nothing and climbing the ladder, right? And in doing so, God redefines honor for the people who follow Jesus. God redefines it. And he says, verse uh, 9, Therefore, in light of all of that, in light of who Jesus is, um, you know, God exalted him to the highest place, put him in the highest position of honor, and gave him the name that is above every name. And this was Yahweh Hashem, the name, okay? Redefined honor. So to a Roman citizen, this would look crazy. This would look nuts. This would look shameful. But this is what God defines honor as. This is what God looks for in honor, not riches. He put him in the highest place. I mean, this is straight out of Isaiah 45. I would encourage you to go read Isaiah 45. This idea here is that God says, I made a promise before, before me, every knee will bow. And so what Paul does is he swaps the, the Yahweh in, in Isaiah with the name of Jesus. Crazy. And the people, the Jewish ears who are hearing this are like, whoa, he just said that Jesus is the one that people will bow a knee to. And so when you flip back to Philippians here in verse 10, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven. So those are the spiritual beings, right? And on earth, the human beings, creation and under the earth, the people who have died, um, there is no place that is outside of Jesus's authority. That's what, that's what this poem, that's what this hymn is saying. In verse 11, it says, in every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Messiah, is Lord, is, uh, you know, Kyriot, Lord is Kyrios, the Greek translation of the Hebrew proper name for God, okay? This, this is back from the dead, uh, Yahweh, flesh and blood, and he goes on to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine singing that in church? Singing that in a courtyard, in the middle of a colony. Imagine, okay, just, just imagine with me how insane this is. You're in Philippi. Nero is Lord. Everyone around you is a colony of Rome, and their whole duty as, as people of this colony is to bring Rome to the world, to Romanize the world. And you did that by proclaiming out loud in worship that Nero is Lord. And here is this tiny little house church that gets a letter from a guy in prison who's in prison for treason because he says Jesus is Lord and he has the audacity to say that and you're a small percentage of the empire right now. You are just a tiny little 
small, dinky 0.000-something percent of the empire, you don't know at the moment how many people are going to come to follow this Jesus that in the next generation after generation, in the next 200 years, the, the followers of Jesus are going to blow up and become the dominant uh, religion in the empire. But you don't know that at this point. This is 61 to 62 AD, and you are singing in a whisper. You are singing in a whisper, singing, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That is insane. There's uh, Pliny. He's a, a Roman writer. He writes to the emperor during this time and he said, there's this little, the church, these people, that it's, it's so weird. They, they actually sing a hymn to this Christ as if he's a god. And why would Pliny write that? Well, he, he, he wrote that because, number one, that was pretty dangerous. And number two, it was completely out of the ordinary. And so before we finish up this morning, two thoughts. One, this is a hymn about God. This is a hymn about God. This is about what God is like. This is a, when you, when you look at Jesus, uh, you see what God is like. And uh, Jesus even said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So this is a, a hymn about um, what God is like. And this is N.T. Wright. Let me read this for you. It says, the decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way to the cross, this decision, was not a decision to stop being divine. I want you to get that. N.T. Wright says, it wasn't a decision to stop being God. It was a decision about what it really meant to be divine. His progression through incarnation, remember, becoming flesh, to death must be seen not as something which required him, as it were, to stop being God for a while, but is a perfect self-expression of the true God. Okay, this is God's character. This is why God did it. Not that Jesus was God and then stopped being God and then died and then went back to being God. That's not it. It's because Jesus was God. He became human. He became Morphe Dulu. So some of you are saying, are you saying that Jesus became a servant? Yes. And then because, are you saying then that God became a servant? Yes. Jesus humbled himself. Are you saying God is humble? Yes. God is humble. And it is the definition of last week, the idea of humility. God is others focused. Completely others focused. And some people have a hard time believing that Jesus is God. And I get that. It's it's, it's hard for some people to get that in their head. But the stumbling block in the first century was not uh, believing Jesus was God. It was believing that Jesus was human. And uh, the modern world's the other way around. We have a hard time figuring out that Jesus is God. And we make the tragic mistake of starting with God and trying to fit Jesus into it. 
Um, like, I know what God's like, and, and I, I'm trying to fit Jesus into that. No, no, no. The New Testament argues from the other direction. The New Testament says God is unknowable, but this is Jesus. We can know the unknowable God through the life and teachings of Jesus. And so that's why we read the Gospels, to find out what God is like. And I would encourage you, read the Gospels. Like, pick, pick up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and just see what God is like. This is Jesus, God in flesh, fully God, fully human. Jesus is the known, God is the unknown. And so that's why Jesus says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. Um, he says, I am Yahweh in flesh and blood. And at one point, he actually uses the term, I am. And the Jewish religious leaders pick up stones and they want to kill him. They want to drive him off a cliff. So we start with Jesus because this is how we see who God is. It's not that Jesus is God, he is Okay, God is Jesus. It's that God is humble. God is a servant. God is the Jesus you read about in character quality. Um, he's not afraid to give his life away. He's gentle and compassionate and patient. And we worship, okay, we worship God. Uh, not only by seeing, singing, that's a start, but that's not the end of our worship. Uh, we worship not just because Jesus is God, he is. Uh, we also worship because God is Jesus, meaning God is not a power-hungry tyrant. He, he, he stands apart. He's not like the other gods. He's, he emptied himself. He poured himself out. That is what God is like. That is the God we worship. So on the first hand, this is a hymn about God. The second part, though, this is a hymn about us. This is a hymn about us. Here is our part. You and I need to own up to our part in our responsibility of the hymn. The hymn is about how we are to live. Now, the preface, remember the preface to this poem. You remember it? This is how you would you know, be together. This is how you care for each other. This preface is about relationships. This is a preface is about how we live in relationship to each other. It's, it's not theology disconnected. You could saw off the first part of uh, verse five and just, I just want to learn about who God is. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is actually saying that Jesus is the pattern for how we live our lives. And we can't disconnect the theology of who Jesus is from our life. Uh, he says, have this mindset in your head. Here is the paradigm. Here is the pattern to follow. To follow this pattern, follow this cross-shaped pattern, this bleep-shaped pattern in your life. Follow Jesus around copy and mimic Jesus in your life. It's almost as if Jesus is our, our, our tutor in this. He's our, he's our rabbi, he's our teacher, and that's why we do the be, become, do. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And the idea is that Jesus says, come on, you can do this. You can lay down your life. You can become a servant. 
You can become a slave. Yeah, that was really hard. I know that was really hard. You did it. I'm so proud of you. Or you, you could try this out in this relationship. You can patch up a relationship. You can um, uh, lay down your life for somebody else. And so it's remember what he said in verse one through four uh, that we talked about last week. He, he talked about the wise and the hows. Um, he uses all this parallel language. What's interesting, so if you remember last week, this idea of uh, empty and vain conceit, um, and then he uses the word empty, Jesus emptied himself. And then he uses the word humility in the last one, and then he talks about how Ju Jesus humbled himself. And then he talked about having this mindset, having the same mindset, and then he talked about having the same mindset of Christ. Church, this is how we're supposed to live. This is where it happens. This is where following Jesus means everything. Okay? It doesn't mean what you know about Jesus. It means how you pattern your life around Jesus. How would tr Jesus treat that person in your life that drives you crazy, that makes you nuts, that frustrates you to no end. How, how, do, you, how do you stay, um, um, how do you enter the pain of people's lives? We, we all have this uh, desire to avoid pain and avoid uh, tragedy and to run from difficult things. And Jesus didn't do that. Jesus entered our world, entered our brokenness. He became a slave. And, and that is the pattern for you and I. And, and in this time where people are frustrated and um, discouraged and angry and, uh, and, and all these different things are upsetting our lives and we're actually being called to not isolate ourselves, not to pull away and hold off and, and hope it all goes away, but we're actually called to be in people's pain, to be in their world to enter the pain, and, and, and it, it, just like Jesus, despising its shame. What would it look for, like for you to empty yourself? What would it look like for you to pattern your life with your wife and your, and your husband and your kids and your neighbors and your coworkers and your family? What would it look like to pattern your life after Jesus, to empty yourself? What does it look like for you? Because in this poem is the redefinition of honor. We no longer follow the pattern of this world. This is, this is Paul in Romans. This is the idea of the curses honor. We don't follow that pattern anymore. We don't follow the ladder climbing and the stepping and we don't follow that. We follow this pattern. This is the pattern. We empty ourselves. We go down the ladder. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. We go down the ladder in our relationship. We go down the ladder in our leadership. We go down the ladder, the older we get, the, the more we give our lives away. 
This is so important right now. With all the division and all the politics and all the screaming at each other and all the frustration we're experiencing and how things aren't normal. The difficulty. Parenting kids in school and online and all of the things that we're struggling with. This is the moment that we climb down the ladder. This is the moment that we enter people's pain. This is the moment that we pattern our lives after the one who emptied himself. Let me pray. God, we are humbled by this. Um, these are the days that we, we recognize that following you, that trusting in Jesus that laying down and surrendering our lives to you in our world means hard things. It means emptying ourselves. And it's difficult. It means putting aside our dreams, putting aside our financial hopes. It means reorienting our posture towards people. It means going into our relationships and owning up to some difficult things. Maybe asking forgiveness. Maybe just humbly just saying, I've got to figure this out with you. God, it may mean that there's somebody in pain in our lives that we have avoided because it feels too messy. And you patterned us walking into that. It means uh, redirecting our, our eyes and our hearts towards the people in our community that are down the ladder, pushed to the margins. And you want us to reorient ourselves to them. God, we have work to do because of this. If you want us to have the same mindset with each other, then it's gonna take us humbling ourselves. It's gonna take real work. It's gonna take emptying ourselves. We pray these things in your name, amen. All right, go talk about it.